1: I I prepared a really in-depth Dharma talk tonight, and uh, then in in the class earlier, the vibe was so soft and intimate. It's nice uh, to be here on a night where it's not completely jammed packed. And my feeling is more that I want to have a conversation rather than, you know, present more stages of meditation to you, which is what I promised and advertised. Um, but before we keep going, what, what, what uh, came up in your group? What benefit are you deriving from this practice? And, or maybe even just walking in the door and uh, putting your body in here.
0: Petra. But it, it um, What I appreciate about it is it keeps me in my intention. Yeah. So what, what I do is I, rather than focusing on the things that come up that make me drift and distract, I, I, I view things as my intention. Yeah. And it's just, um, yeah, this is a great reinforcement. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Somebody else. What came up in there? Andre.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It didn't come up, but it came up now. Um, A big change for me has been understanding conditions and and the choices that arise from the conditions, and and seeing that in other people and the compassion that. That streams from that yeah. to like really extreme cases yeah. where like the world sees this person as really, really bad, and I just have all this compassion towards them because I I, I imagine that if I was in that same situation, like it, it, it I would have made the same choice. Um, it's been pretty substantial mm-hmm. and has helped me understand my family too much better. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Good timing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (coughs) Somebody else?
0: Yeah. Um, This practice has helped me be more gentle with myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I notice the sort of ripple effect when I'm in relationships. Mm -hmm. And when I come regularly here, I I soften for sure. Mm -hmm.
1: Couple more, Sam.
0: Um, I found there's a consistency with the three of us that coming every week mm-hmm. is really grounding. Yeah. And it allows for a reflection for the yeah. days that you're not here. Uh-huh. But it kind of, and I personally am finding my weeks are starting to revolve around Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so I sit and then I experience
1: what I experience and then I take it out into the rest of the week mm-hmm. and then come back into here, yeah, and almost like start over again, or move through that, you know. Erin?
0: I'm still working on how this is a benefit, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really allowed me to see this spectrum of, of fluctuation in my state that I think I wasn't aware of before. I didn't, and in particular, it's really been interesting to see how unstill I mean, and how disoriented and how like many different like so many flavors of <clears throat> of distraction mm-hmm. and starting to really note it like and become familiar and be like oh aha huh mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or not so kind but mm-hmm. but I've actually just found it very fascinating to see like how many states there really are, and how they come back and come back. Mm -hmm. Just getting to be more friends with those, Mm -hmm. rather than just unconsciously being distracted all Mm -hmm. the time. A lot of the time. Mm -hmm. It's good. Mm
1: -hmm. Thanks. Maybe just from a a man? (laughs) 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 This is only my second group, so... Uh yeah, I think I. Uh, what I'm look, looking for is really the kind of camaraderie, like with yeah. people who are interested in the same kind of uh, world, uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. spiritual mm-hmm. discipline. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean that's what I, I I'm looking for more in my life. This is kind of you know, it's, I guess when you have when you're in a kind of a community, uh, there is some kind of reinforcement and, mm-hmm. uh, people kind of holding you to your or i guess i guess strengthening the discipline you know like mm-hmm. through various like you're talking about distraction and everything there's a lot of things that distract you in, in the world so mm-hmm. uh, it's really really hard to do it on your own sometimes mm-hmm. these things are uh, overwhelming yeah uh, so it's nice to have a community where you Learn how to at least for a, sh- a short period of time focus on yeah. something that's really relevant and uh, mm-hmm. strengthening yeah. foundation-wise. Yeah. I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Thanks. It's interesting for me, you know, just sitting here and, and watching you in the groups and just, you know, it's, um, it's 8 o'clock, 8 eight o five. And um, at 5.30, your eyes were everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know? We started practicing, and people are just looking around. And (laughs) and it takes so long to really get the gaze happening and to get the breath steady. And now here we are. And it's like, it took a couple hours. Mm -hmm. But there's a kind of steadiness. that, And it's like, you, you know... To, to nourish that part of us that that uh, wants that, the inner monk in all of us, the inner nun uh, who who really thrives when we give him or her space um, to live um, so. I, I, You know, I had a whole pl- talk plan tonight where I was going to critique last week. Because last week I talked about the stages of meditation practice and why it's really important sometimes to have a map and how the nature of the um, self is to always hijack our practice and think we've gotten somewhere or we haven't gotten somewhere. And... Um, What's nice about having a map is that we can measure our practice and really see if the stories that we're telling about our practice are true. And I think nowadays, where so many versions of practice are just products that we relate to anonymously, where I come to class, I get what I want out of it, and then I'm, I anonymously leave the, uh, the back door, you know. And um, I think the nice thing about learning about some of the stages of practice is we start to see where we're at now, even though it may shift in three minutes. You know? But it kind of helps us with the landscape. So tonight I, I want to explore that a little more uh, using a um from the Book of Equanimity. And um, this is by a a great teacher who shows up in a lot of koans named Tozan. And Tozan was in China practicing Buddhism at a time when Buddhism was repressed. And it was actually dangerous to be a monk. And um, uh, he got very sick. And um, when he was sick, his students came to visit him. And um, this is an interaction that happened during one of the visits. And you'll see how it's tied into our meditation practice. Um, it upset me so much to hear this weekend that Carmen was so sick. She has asthma, and so uh, when she contracted pneumonia, she couldn't breathe, so she had to go to the hospital. Her husband had to call an ambulance, and, and she was really scared, you know, and then. Um, Always when someone's close to you and is in your community and then they get really sick and then they they get scared and Then you know now that everything's okay But somehow it goes in deep so I found that I was trying to write this talk about meditation and I just kept writing about sickness and illness and um, so I thought of this koan and every time I tried to not include it in the talk Some line from it found its way back, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, So this is for Carmen and all of us. When Tozan was ill, a monk asked, You are ill, teacher, but is there anyone who does not get ill? So you can hear this in two ways, interpersonally and also intrapsychically. Is there anyone who doesn't get ill? But also, in us, is there like someone in us who does not get ill? Kind of like you know when I teach uh, in meditation practice about being tired and watching your tiredness from the place in you that's not tired, watching your anxiety from the place in you that's not anxious, watching fear from the place in you that's not scared. So this koan is playing with that a little bit. (coughs) Tozan was ill, and a monk came and asked, You are ill, teacher, but is there anyone who does not get ill? From his bed, Tozan replied, Yes, there is. And the monk asked, Does the one who is not ill look after you? Tozan responds, I have the opportunity to look after him. The monk asked, How is it when you look after him? Tozan said, I don't see any illness. This is one of those koans that is so complex. We've been dealing with the easy ones. Let's go through this together. Tozan is ill, he's in bed, and a monk comes to see him and says, You're ill. But is there there anyone who does not get ill? So let's start just by looking at it internally. So you go to your teacher who is ill, and I think actually sometimes students, it's hard for them to accept when their teacher is anything but masterful. And here, Tozan is there not being a virtuoso. Um, Ed Brown always says that Um, There are two kinds of teachers. There are teachers who are masterful, masterful and teachers who have problems. The masterful teacher is a virtuoso and they say to you, if you stay close to me, you also will learn the masterful technique and you will become masterful. And then there are teachers who have problems and they say, I have some problems, and as you get to know them, you see their clumsiness, and then it gives you permission to have problems. And as Shinru Suzuki said, which I quoted last week, it's really hard to meditate if you don't have a problem. And I think some of us, we think of practice as like the path towards not having problems. No, I know. But once earlier in your practice, that's something you might have thought. So you are ill, teacher, but is there anyone in you who does not get ill? It's like saying you're broken. And is there some place in you that's not broken? You're experiencing grief. Is there some place in you? You have a teenager. Does anyone have one of these? Yeah. Is there some place in you that's still okay? And Tozan responds, of course, yes. The monk asks, does the one who is not ill look after you? Does that part in you that's not broken look after the brokenness? And for any of you who's ever, you know, done any kind of therapeutic work, you know this is like, this is the motto, right? Is that part of you that is not a child is taking after the child, right? That part of you that knows how to feed yourself is taking part of that, is taking care of that part of you that doesn't. But it gets flipped around. Does the one who is not ill look after you? And Tozen says... I have the opportunity to look after him. This is an interesting switch around, isn't it? The monk asks, Well, then, how is it when you look after him? And Tozan says, I don't see any illness. It's very interesting. How is it when we look after people who are not ill? Because certainly that part in us that's broken is also the part that's so beautiful. You know, I, I think about this sometimes that I want to say to people, you know, there's, there's phases in people's year where their, their practice is like totally motivated. For all the right reasons, and they're really in the zone. Has anyone had this this year? And uh, people look beautiful when the Dharma is in them. They look more beautiful. I mean, now we're all wasted, and it's the holidays and everything. But like, there were times this fall, you probably your hair might even looked good. <laughs> um, And also, what it's like to serve people who don't want to be ill or to serve parts of ourselves that we don't allow to be ill. Um, One of the interesting things that happens in this koan is that it's not the not ill part that's looking after the ill part, it's that the ill part, the broken part, the sickness is uh, what tenderizes us. Trungpa Rinpoche called this the raw spot. And it's actually the raw spot in us um, that takes care of everything else. And um, this might echo the koan that we worked with a while ago about Master Riyawan, where we tend to want to say that there's this inner light in us that is untouched by anything. And I think sometimes that's a helpful way of looking at our lives. But in this koan, it gets flipped around, which is that it's actually the brokenness that is what softens us to interdependence. And one of the reasons why I hoped we could start with this little partner exercise tonight is because, you know, I think when we're connected to our real motivation for practice, We're connected to the raw spot in us. And when we're connected to that place in us, um, we want to learn. We're interested. And then you're like a walking triple treasure, walking Buddha, walking Dharma, and walking Sangha, and talking, walking, talking, triple treasure it would be a great candy bar <laughs> you'd have like the Buddha layer <laughs> it would be in the middle you know and it's really like uh, caramelly and um, gives you like a, uh, the rush before the coma you know <laughs> and then there would be like the Dharma level which would be just like filler and then there would be to help you see the inner level and the Sangha level will just like interpenetrate all so we can work on that
0: um,
1: and, I, and I think what happens is when we're not operating from the broken part then we tend to get inflated you know? and when we go through the world that way we just kind of push people away um, I've been going on dates for the past two weeks with Susan Sontag. She's, like, she's my best friend right now. I, I take her out and we have dinner together <laughs> and we drink wine together. and um, um, she, she was so um, such a, a, a powerful writer after 9-11. Some of you may know that right after 9-11, Susan Sontag critiqued Uh, the conventional media and um, pointed out many things, including the fact that Iraq has a population of 24 million people, half of which are children. Not a lot of countries have that kind of population. 24 million. The United States has a population of 290 million. And so she would write about you know, violence from a statistical perspective, which is unlike the way she usually wrote. And her stuff was never published. And there were places where she was published all the time, the New Yorker and so on. Many of you probably read her writing. Right after 9 11, when she started critiquing nationalism, her work was not published. And it's actually not in a country's best interest to do this. It's not in Israel's best interest to be an oppressor. It's not in the United States' best interest to be what Susan Sontag calls a um, hyperpower. <laughs> it's not in your best interest to, to to push anyone out of the way. And I think sometimes when we're broken or when we're sick we want to like hurry up the process and like put up fences and put up walls and keep some of that stuff over here. And the thing about this practice is it tenderizes you. Mm. And it lets you see that the part of you that's powerful is only 24 million. Right? And that's usually the broken part. And um, it's just so easy to push the rawness to the side, isn't it? (coughs) And then... Um, when you're really in your life, whatever direction you look, if you look towards purity, there's no illness. And if you look towards illness, there's no illness. When you're with somebody in a hospital and they're ill, and you're really with them, you're not relating to the illness. You don't relate to the person saying, Oh, you're so ill that <laughs> you know you're. When your heart is open, you're, you're just with that person how they are. And I think any of you who have been broken, who have been ill, when you're fully in your grief, or when you're fully in your pain, or when you're fully in a fever, you're just relating to what's happening moment to moment. You're not relating to an ill person. And I think this is what Tozen is after. And I think this is what we're trying to do in our meditation practice. Um... So I made a list. I'm not good at making lists, but I thought, okay, I'm going to... Someone asked a question last week. How do you measure your practice? Do you remember this? Anne, I think, from from Vancouver. Um, So I made a list of how to measure your practice. And they're numbered, even. Here it goes. Number one, there is no template... The template depends entirely on your intention. So your motivation for practice, as it changes over time, actually determines the template. And I think it's one of the nice things about practicing in community is you can talk to people about your practice and then you can see the template more clearly. Number two, um, there are different levels of students with various motivations and capacities. There are different kinds of students who practice for different reasons. And uh, one thing that I get accused of a lot is having high expectations. And um, I sometimes want to explain to myself, but you know when I meet new people who come here and practice and they show up for a few months and then they start to get the spirit of what we do here, um, I kind of get this feeling immediately that we're going to practice together for 10 or 20 years some people I get the feeling it's 10 years, some people 20 and usually I'm wrong and it's the opposite but actually uh, it's like how something matures how it gets more delicious it, it takes time you know. and um, so Sometimes because I have the view that we're gonna do this together for ten years and they have the view that they're coming here for the next month, (laughs) I get accused of having really high expectations. So I'll say, like if you really want to do this practice, then you know, take the precepts course and, and come on the New Year's retreat. Say, but it's it's July. Say, yeah, so plan the New Year's retreat, and the precepts course starts in November, you know. Um and, uh, and I think even if your motivation is very, very simple, like I just want to meet people. I, went, I, went, I was at the coffee shop uh, uh, yesterday, um, the other temple, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was talking to a woman there who came here twice. And I said, oh, I remember you coming twice. I remembered her name. How, how come you haven't been back? And she said, well, it it was just a little more religious than I thought. And she's like, is it a religion that you're doing there? And I said, yeah. mm -hmm." She was expecting I would say no. I could feel. So I said, yeah, uh uh-huh. It's a a religion. And um, she said, which religion? So I said, well, we're still working that out. And I said, uh, how come you didn't come back? And she said, well, I was just hoping for it to be a little smaller. And I said, oh, well, well, um, why? And she said, well, I first got there and I thought I was really interested in learning about meditation practice, but I actually just moved to Toronto. And once I was there, I realized I'm actually really interested in just meeting people. And I thought that was so sweet. And, I don't know how many of us you know, grew up in religions where we went to temple or church or synagogue. And um, really the function of the place, 90% maybe, was just to keep community together, you know, to keep people together. So we all have different motivations for coming to practice, and that's going to determine the kind of template that we use. Three. This is the most important one. As you get deeper in your practice, you realize new horizons that you couldn't have imagined before. I can't stress this one enough. That sometimes we have an idea, oh, this practice leads to this. And then we don't realize that actually as you get deeper, you start to see these new plateaus of practice that you could never have realized before and you see it in your own life but you also see it in people around you you see people who've been struggling and then it gets transformed and something new happens and you see they hit a new phase in their life and this is not just true of buddhism or of islam or of using our relational lives as practice it's true everywhere That there are kind of phases that sometimes we overcome and transform, and then you get through one, and you didn't realize all the all the options. Any of you who make art, it's like this, right? You get to a plateau, and it's like, oh, this is pretty good. You know, I'll just work with this, and then you you keep going a little more. You know, maybe you erase something, and then you see that there's a new level, and then maybe. A few months later, working on that piece of art or whatever you're working with, then you realize, oh, I, could, I, I didn't realize I could have taken it to that level, you know. And then your first attempt seems so naive, you know. They're not layered enough or sophisticated enough, or maybe even simple enough. Um, number four, sometimes it's good to learn stages. Number five, sometimes we don't need them. Number six, go back to number three. (laughs) That was the part about uh, sometimes not seeing that there are new plateaus. Number seven, get feedback. Number eight, from a teacher. (laughs) This part split up. There are four kinds of teachers. Number one, professor. The professor knows many things about the map. And it's a really good kind of teacher to have. You say, I'm studying yoga, I'm studying hatha yoga. Well, it's actually good to know what that means, the tradition that it comes from, and and what sequences are, or what uh, traditional internal patterns are taught, Um, how that system takes care of doubt, how that system takes care of being a system. Um, Every good system has a way of accounting for the way it's turned into a system. And we need sort of a professor. We need a teacher who kind of understands a lineage and can sort of place it for us. And I think that's really important. And I think in our eclectic practice in our culture, I think we sometimes miss that professor piece. Um, And uh, I think it's really, really important. Uh, 8b Dharma instructor somebody who is able to teach you about how the teachings work in your actual life. C. A meditation or ritual instructor. Someone with mastery in meditation practice who can instruct you in technique so that you can see that the Dharma is a practice. D is the last one. Spiritual mentor. Some someone who can do all of the above but doesn't necessarily have to do A which was a professor. Okay? So somebody who can do the Dharma instructor, the meditation instructor, and the spiritual mentor all in one but doesn't have to be the professor the professor can be someone else. And once in a while, there's someone who also can do the professor part. But it's not necessarily the case. So number eight, which is the ending of that, those stages. I've never written stages before. This is the first time I've ever tried writing stages. Was, I don't know if it works. But um, I think it's really important to get feedback from a teacher. And these are the different kinds of teachers. And I think it's important that we have some. And uh, to be honest, actually, and I know some of you maybe uh, have had this in your life or not, but I really uh, measure like the index of how I'm doing in my practice is totally related to my relationship with my teacher. And when I'm struggling with something, it completely comes out in that relationship. and uh, they know when to respond and how and they know when not to respond and how and um, it's interesting how you can use a relationship as a mirror for what's going on and a relationship has two sides I think there's the conventional side which is that you realize when your teacher is not so masterful and I think actually a lot of us just quit there you know, it's like we have an idealization of what a teacher is and then you get to know them they get to know you and then you get to know them <laughs> and like I think a lot of us we just start getting mired in that and we forget that teachers hopefully elegantly um, let us down and it's really really good um, because we can't idealize them Um, but then also the teacher has another side which they are a living embodiment of the Buddha and they are in every way your teacher and they teach you in a way that nobody else can teach you and they inspire you and they really inspire you to practice and when you can see and work with that relationship in your own heart and maybe even with them so that you can see that side of them also then you can start to internalize that in yourself and then you can do that with other people around you so you take the relationship and you really meditate on it you see the part of your teacher that fails you over and over again but you don't end there you also see underneath that how that person is a Buddha. And then every single thing they do, they're not letting you off the hook and they're teaching you. And then you use that to be able to find that in yourself. The part that is sick, taking care of the part that is not sick. And then when you can do that in yourself, then you can do it with people all around you. We all need to learn that, don't we? I really think so. And so we're all priests here. Every one of us here is a priest. We're all wearing robes. Look around. We all have robes on. And we can do this with each other. We can see the part, the way we idealize people or the way we deflate people. But then maybe that part of us who is Hurt, and who is ill can then start to see that in other people have that also and they have had restricted lives just like we've had restricted lives and then it might occur to us, oh yeah I can be a little kinder to myself yeah. and uh, then maybe I can uh, take care of that <laughs> part and then we can do this with the teacher with ourselves Maybe even with other people. And then maybe nations could do this. I love the United States so much. It's my favorite country. And it has the worst foreign policy of any country I can think of in history. It's so uh, terrible. It, 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 I'm not going to go on about it. But you know when we really look at what that country is doing, it's just awful. And that country is so beautiful. The landscape is so amazing. The people are fantastic, most of them. And um, we all have this in us, too. We have the oppressor and the victim and so on. And the thing about meditation practice is it brings them all to the surface. And then there's this cast of characters trying to have a neighborhood, you know? And you're just like the host. You know? And your job, if we really see that this practice is about intimacy, is to just make space for everybody and not to oppress anybody. And say, you're welcome here. And meet so-and-so. <laughs> Anxiety meet depression <laughs> oh they 've met already <laughs> you know and it 's like you 're just making introductions you know? and um, imagine you 're going to have a party we 're on bellwoods, you know, and imagine i 'm going to have a party here you haven 't met my neighbors. I have some really wild neighbors, so if I had a party, I have to include everybody. And I'm going to invite, like, you know, the drunk kids in the alley, and the people smoking pot, and all the Portuguese kids, you know, smoking pot and drinking in the alley. (laughs) Um, And and you know, we have an alley party, and this is what you know. Our practice is actually going deep into the body, into this central alley, and to 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 make space for a party to happen. And. um, I, I think in doing this, we we, um, we we just don't fool ourselves. We stop fooling ourselves. And um, I could keep going, but are there any questions or comments before? Yeah. Just quickly, what was six and seven? <laughs> uh, number six was go back to number three. Number seven was get feedback. Please don't copy them out, though. maybe the last thing i'll say is about that long-term arc of practice is that like maybe it's better like maybe it might be nice and maybe the precepts course is doing this is if there was some kind of ritual you had where you became a student you know because we're not really a student yet until there's stability i think And sometimes I think this is the major difference between psychotherapy and Dharma practice. Is that in psychotherapy you come to your client, because you come to your patient, your doctor or your therapist because you're a mess and you're on your knees. And And, um, I actually don't think that, although there, I mean, you know, a lot of people come to Dharma practice for that reason. Actually, I once asked a Tibetan teacher Tibetan scholar what's the difference between a psychotherapist and a dharma teacher there's such a Tibetan answer and, the, and they said oh well you know a psychotherapist they just work on solving your problems and working with you to heal so you have a good life and the dharma practitioner is making sure that or the, the dharma teacher is making sure that that happens for thousands of lifetimes <laughs> that didn't help me so much um but I, I think in the Dharma practice actually the practice doesn't really get going until there's stability I think that's something that I'm learning more and more is that there is a kind of stability you need I think to really drop into the depth of this practice and um uh, then, when there's stability in your practice, then you start to see the new plateaus, and uh, I think that's really, really important. So, um, we'll make a list for that one. <laughs> Grant, how do you mean stability?
0: In what
1: sense? That you can be still. Um, that you have a livelihood that allows you to um, have enough leisure time and enough kind of moral <laughs> or ethical um, integrity um, that you feel like your life is not so split up. You know? And um, that there are certain patterns or certain scars that you would have to fulfill in order to really call yourself a student. And this happened traditionally. So, for example, in traditional teachings, if you want to have a teacher, one of the first things the teacher will ask you to do is to make peace with your parents. When I was going to do, I I dropped out of a PhD, but my PhD was going to be looking at the teacher-student relationship and the uh, therapist-client relationship. And that was the first thing I came across in my research, that sort of kiboshed my hypothesis, which is that um, they had a way of weeding out students so that we all turn our teachers into our parents. Whether you like it or not or admit it or not, we do this all the time. Into our siblings, into our parents, into our early relationships we project on our teachers. And um, all of them. Or anybody in power. You know. And um, we need to work through that and um, traditionally, if a teacher picks up that they're being projected on, then they don't accept you as a student. And, and, and one of the initial things they'll ask you to do is they'll ask you if you've made peace with your parents. That's, now, that's thousands of years old. That's pretty fabulous, I think. So that's like when you go see a Dharma teacher now and they say, yes, you can become a student, but first you need to do some psychotherapy. Because there's not enough stability yet for you to really do the practices. Or in Asia, you know, you come to a monastery to do a retreat, and they'll say, well, no, not this retreat, but you can come here and you can work in the kitchen, or you can work in the field, or you can, you know, help fix the roof tiles, so that you can start to plant the patterns necessary to gain stability to then be a student. And I think this is really important. Um, any other comments or questions yes
0: um, I just wanted to comment on the
1: tenderness yeah and uh, something came up for me about s- strength in that when you're really vulnerable and you're really open Yeah. and there's tenderness there Yeah. I've experienced in Difficulties and death, but yeah. there's this incredible strength that comes out of it. Yeah. yeah, while it's happening, uh-huh. yeah. it all just came up for me. Yeah, yeah. Trungpa Rinpoche when he talks about the ras body, calls it em- what comes out of it is embryonic compassion. Mm-hmm. That's the word he uses, embryonic compassion. I like to think of it as like when you're really connected with that and you're stable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like Full combustion, you know. You're it's clean. You know, you're right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to just do one more little partner exercise. If that's okay. Um, I, after what we've explored, I would like you to just get back into the same group, and and uh, we'll just take a few minutes for this, like four or five minutes. And um, I just want you to share with them um, how is what you're learning, what we talked about tonight, this practice you referred to earlier, how is it going to help you through the next week? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody told me today that um, the bell curve during the year for the suicide rate used to be in February and now it's moved to the week between Christmas and New Year's. That's the place in the year where there is the most loneliness, the most conflict. And um, maybe some of you are not at that place. Maybe you've been in that place in your life. Um, But certainly you will touch some of the triggers that are in that place this week. I'm sure that you will experience uh, love and disappointment. Like when we're with family, nobody sees me. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever ever felt this before? (laughs) So how is your practice going to I know you've passed this stage, but how is your practice going to help you this week? So let's just take a couple minutes with that, with your group.